Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, August 15th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. At-home DNA tests are marketed as lighthearted ways to learn about your genes. But what happens when they provide life-changing information? We'll talk to one person who got a shocking piece of news from her spit test. Next, we'll talk about the next new thing in cancer immunotherapy, bispecific antibodies. We'll talk to Dr. Greg Freiberg, an executive at Amgen, about why his company is betting on the approach. Sarepta Therapeutics won a controversial drug approval three years ago, but as Adam reports this week, the company has yet to fill a promise to the FDA for a confirmatory trial. We'll explain the situation. And finally, we'll bring Greg Freiberg back on for a lightning round. We'll pepper him with questions on the four horsemen of biotech, the best place to get pizza, and whether L.A. is misunderstood. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. Over the past decade, more than 25 million people have ordered at-home DNA testing kits, the ones where you spit into a tube and send away for information on health and ancestry. Companies like Ancestry and 23andMe promote these tests with lighthearted ads and promises to connect consumers with long-lost family members. But not all of the information they provide is the stuff of polite conversation. 23andMe, for example, has the FDA's permission to test for genetic mutations that are strongly correlated with cancer. Dorothy Pomerantz is one of those 25 million people. Last year, she thought it would be fun to learn more about her genes. So she bought a 23andMe test and sent her spit to Silicon Valley. But what she learned went far beyond the lighthearted stuff advertised on TV. Dorothy wrote about her experience for STAT last week, and she joins us now to talk about her story and about the reaction that ensued. Dorothy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, it's nice to be here. So going back to last year, after you sent away your 23andMe spit test, you got an email from the company saying your genetic results were ready. What happened when you clicked through to the company's website? Well, on the website, they consider some of these results sensitive because they're very, very serious. So they had me click through a tutorial that really kind of tried to explain what I was going to see and the ramifications of what I was going to see. But I think, like most people, I did not expect bad news. So I just sort of clicked through it. And when I got to the other end of the tutorial, it showed that I had the BRCA1 mutation. And so BRCA1 significantly elevates risk for breast and ovarian cancer. After you learned about that status, you went to a doctor to confirm the results. What was the contrast between the experience of reading about your status online versus the experience of discussing it with a live genetic counselor? For me, the contrast was pretty stark. So when I received the information online, I had just been working out and I sort of was running around the house, you know, doing kid stuff and work and all of that. And I sort of blithely, you know, opened this email and got this really terrifying news. 
when I went to my doctor, they immediately had me do a second test with a different company. And I sat with a genetic counselor. So she really explained to me calmly the ramifications of the information I might learn. And let me ask her questions, which was very important. Then when the results came in, she actually said to me, I won't email you these results and I won't tell you these results over the phone. You have to come in. I was actually going to be in Italy when she was going to get the results. And I said to her, I can't know that these results are there and not know what they are. So I said to her, please do it over the phone. And she agreed to after a lot of hesitation. So she called me while I was on my vacation and she told me that, in fact, the news that I'd gotten from 23andMe was accurate, that I did have the BRCA1 mutation. While we were on the phone, you know, she took the time to say, what do you need right now? Do you need information? Do you need to go and cry? What do you need? And just dealing with a human being in that moment was really a very different experience. I still felt scared, of course, like really scared, but I didn't feel like I was alone. I didn't feel like I had just sort of fallen into a pit and I didn't know how I was going to get out. I knew there was somebody there with me who was going to help me through this. So, Dorothy, as you wrote in your story, which we recommend everyone read, it's very compelling. That confirmation sent you down the path of preventative surgery. Uh, one thing you wrote that really stood out to me was that despite the trauma of learning this information online, if not for the 23andMe test, you might not have learned about your BRCA1 status until you had actually developed cancer. Yeah, that's 100% true. So, The vast majority of people who get tested for the BRCA mutation, they have a history of breast cancer in their family. Most people I know who have been tested for it, you know, their mother had cancer, their grandmother, all their aunts, everybody had cancer. That was not the case with me. My aunt had died of cancer, but it was a rare occurrence in my family. Like nobody else had had that. You know, I I was really grateful that I found out before I got cancer I mean, it's not a 100% chance that I would have gotten cancer, of course. You're, you're sort of playing the odds when you're talking about genetic testing. But the odds were really bad. So the fact that I could take action, even though it was a lot and, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of traumatic to have that much surgery, I am still consider myself incredibly lucky. And I am really grateful every day that I found this out and I was able to take action and I'm healthy and this is off my plate. So how has the response been since you published your story last week? The response has been has been overall really positive. I think the ratio of people calling me brave to people calling me a bitch is pretty high. But there are some people out there who have been really weirdly angry and negative towards me about the story, which I I kind of don't understand. A lot of people have said that I'm ungrateful and call me some nasty things, but maybe that's just what happens whenever you put yourself out there on the internet. Like you can't do that without people saying some mean things. But I think overall, people have been very supportive and have said that it actually made them, you know, think more about getting genetic testing and made them want to do it. And so, Dorothy, when friends and family ask you about potentially getting uh, at home DNA tests of their own, How do you advise them? I have sort of said to them, just make sure you do it in a way that you're 
going to get really good genetic testing. Because the other thing about 23andMe, especially with the BRCA mutations, is that it only tests for three variants, which of course I didn't know when I did the testing. So as sort of scary as it was to get the results I did, it's actually potentially even scarier to get a clean bill of health from doing that test because there's thousands of mutations. It's really scary. Like it's scary to find these hidden time bombs in your genes. But I now sort of feel like knowledge is power. I'm I'm really glad I know. I say to people, you know, I'm glad I did it and I think it's worth doing. And if you're going to do it, do it with a doctor. But I also completely 100% respect that it's an individual choice and there's lots of people who just don't want to know this information and that's okay. Dorothy, thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks a lot. We should also note that we reached out to 23andMe for comment and they sent us a statement. That statement reads in part, Our biggest takeaway from Dorothy's recent op-ed piece is relief that she learned potentially life-saving information. It takes courage and strength to share such a personal story on a public forum, and we hope Dorothy's experience inspires others to be proactive about their health. And the 23andMe statement went on to say that the customer results are carefully designed to ensure that customers first fully consider whether or not they want to view their results. know plenty about biotech's most famous acronyms, CRISPR and CAR-Ts. In this next segment, we're going to introduce you to another one, BITES. BITES are short for bispecific T-cell engagers. They're Amgen's version of the mostly experimental type of cancer immunotherapy known as bispecific antibodies, which are being developed by some two dozen companies, large and small. So joining us today to talk about BITES is Dr. Greg Freiberg, a vice president at Amgen, who heads up the company's oncology global development. Amgen already has one bite on the market that's called Blincyto, which was approved for acute lymphocytic leukemia, or ALL, back in 2014. And Amgen has a bunch more bites in development, including for multiple myeloma, small cell lung cancer, glioblastoma, and other solid tumors. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for letting me join you. So, Greg, we hear in the parlance of sports radio that you're a first-time caller, long-time listener to the Read Out Loud. I indeed, first time, long time. <laughs> So, Greg, can you explain the concept behind bispecific antibodies? How are they different from the standard antibody drugs that we know and love or from CAR-Ts, for that matter? So, uh, bite antibodies, at their heart, they're off-the-shelf pharmaceuticals. So, they're engineered like standard antibodies would be. But the difference is, of course, inherent in the name that they bind two targets. One of the targets is CD3 on T-cells. And then the other can be swapped out for a variety of tumor-selective antigens. The Bottom line here is, at the end of the day, you have this drug that when infused into the patient, when it comes into contact with T-cells and a tumor, uh, or any tissue for that matter, that expresses the target antigen of interest, you activate the immune system and really give the T-cells a set of spectacles to see antigens that they might not have been able to beforehand. The end result is tumor killing and expansion of the T-cell compartment. And then at least one case, there's, uh, of course, proof of concept with Blincido for CD19 that clinically that can result in meaningful improvement for patients with ALL. So in theory, what are the advantages of bispecific antibodies over CAR-Ts? 
Well, first and foremost, being a, a pharmaceutical, one can administer the drug and then theoretically stop administering the drug. So you can tune that pharmacodynamic activity, and that has implications when we think about therapeutic window. On the flip side, of course, it means that patients need to have the drug administered, uh, and in the case of the first generation, as a continuous infusion in order to continue to get that pharmacodynamic activity. I think that the most profound difference is if you can pull off the kind of immune activation with one of these off-the-shelf pharmaceuticals in a similar way to what the CAR T-cell can, then you open up a world that's much more convenient. You know, the costs certainly of generating these, the cost of wait time, uh, the cost of toxicity management, it opens up the possibility to fine-tune those effects and hopefully have a, a product and a drug that can help patients in ways that perhaps uh, the CAR T's wouldn't be able to. So, Greg, so far we've seen CAR T's be most active and approved in types of blood cancer. You also have a bispecific antibody approved in blood cancer, but uh, have you shown activity in solid tumors as well? We have shown some initial activity in solid tumors. Uh, just showed data at ASCO this year for PSMA with one of these, what we call canonical bites, one of these early continuous infusion bites that yes, indeed, there were three patients who had PSA decreases patients with prostate cancer, uh, and one who had, had quite uh, a significant improvement in, in their imaging uh, studies as well. But the question remains somewhat open. Will we be able to tackle solid tumors in a way that the field has you know, quite nicely shown activity in the heme malignancies? Solid tumors are a different beast. The antigens tend to be shared. Uh, you know, they're not unique on solid tumors. And of course, the, the microenvironment around solid tumors tends to be uh, tumor uh, immune suppressing. And so we have a lot of way to go, but I would say that on the bite side, at least we have proof of concept that this is something that can work. And the question is, are these broadly utilizable uh, pharmaceuticals that we can bring forward? So as we mentioned, Amgen has one bite already approved, but commercial sales have been modest. What are some of the disadvantages to existing bites? And what is Amgen doing to try to improve follow-on versions? The challenge with a drug of that first-generation um, bite modality has been uh, that it needs to be administered as a continuous infusion. These are drugs that have a very short half-life on the order of hours. So if you want continuous coverage, you need to wear a pump, have an indwelling catheter. Now, in ALL, that hasn't been a problem, but certainly in other diseases, the idea of wearing a pump is a little bit more of a challenge. So we have been looking at this platform and evolving it. We have now what we call our half-life extension technology, which is an FC engineering uh, that allows these sorts of molecules to be administered not by continuous infusion, but less frequently with a goal of uh, once weekly, perhaps uh, every two weeks. And so from a practical standpoint, there are going to be some diseases uh, where that is what it takes, again, to be able to have a drug that can get to the most patients and ultimately help the most people. But the unanswered question, of course, is, is there something technically specific about the continuous infusion bite, whether that's because of therapeutic window, whether that's because of something related to the stoichiometry and the size of the molecule that makes that special? These are the kind of questions that are actually being asked right now. We have three programs where we actually have both a half-life extended and what we call the canonical, the continuous infusion bites. And we're going to ask those questions. Uh, I suspect that 
Again, it won't be a one-size-fits-all. I think by different targets and by different disease states, we're probably going to have to fine-tune how these are administered and see what, at the end of the day, helps the most patients. So toxicity is another concern that some scientists have about bites. The fear is that the T-cells that the biospecifics activate might stay activated long after the antibodies are out of the patient's bloodstream. How big of a worry for you is safety when it comes to the bites? So we always worry that when we're activating the immune system, and in this case, when we're giving it a target to go after, that the T-cells aren't going to care whether that's on a tumor or on the host. And so we have to be very careful when we are picking our targets and when we're administering the drugs to make sure that we're fine-tuning that line between poisoning the tumor and poisoning the host. Now, with CD19, that tends to be fairly forgiving. We all can live without B-cells for a certain amount of time, so the idea of healthy B-cell depletion doesn't seem to be too problematic. The good news, at least from our early studies, has been that when the drug washes out of the bloodstream, that the pharmacodynamic activity of the drug goes away. And for the example with CD19, B cells can come back. So when the drug is on, again, we watch very closely for these sorts of side effects. But having the short half-life in some ways is actually helpful because you can fine-tune, you can turn the pump on and off and try to, uh, again, walk that line between toxicity and efficacy. My hope is with some experience in the field that we're going to be able to fine-tune these effects and really be able to harness this kind of a power without it being uh, too detrimental to the patient. Greg, thanks for briefing us on Bites. Thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure. And we should note that Greg will join us later in this episode for a special lightning round. So stay tuned if you want to hear more from Greg. Back in 2016, Sarepta won a controversial drug approval. It's one of the most anticipated events of the year, Sarepta Therapeutics getting FDA approval for its Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug. Uh, the stock up 75% today on this surprise decision. Most At that time, the biotech promised to run a study confirming the treatment's benefit. Three years later, however, that trial has yet to treat a single patient. The required trial, mandated by the FDA, is running three or four years behind schedule. As Adam reported in a stat story this week, Sarepta says it's working as fast as possible to conduct a confirmatory trial, and that it regrets the delay. In the meantime, however, Sarepta is reaping about $300 million a year from the drug, which is called Exondus 51. And it's a curious situation. A drug approved to treat a rare and fatal muscle-wasting disease is generating hundreds of millions of dollars each year. But still, no one knows if it really works. Adam, remind us again what happened back in 2016 when Exondus 51 was approved. This was, if I recall correctly, a very controversial FDA decision. Yeah, Damien, it was very controversial. So Sarepta won approval for Exondus 51 under what is known as an accelerated approval. And basically, they got the drug approved based on a surrogate biomarker. In this case, it was a small increase in a muscle protein. What Sarepta didn't have at that time was any data to show that Exondus 51 actually benefited patients by improving muscle function. But, you know, the FDA does allow drugs to be approved under accelerated approval standards when, you know, it's a rare disease, there's an unmet medical need. And in this case with Duchenne, this is a, you know, a rare progressive muscle wasting disease that is fatal for children. And so accelerated approvals require companies to run new clinical trials to confirm a treatment benefit. But as you wrote in your story, Adam, Sarepta is three or four years behind schedule. 
Exactly. So Sarepta got this early approval for Exonus 51, but in return, they had to make a commitment that indeed, after the drug was on the market, that they would conduct a confirmatory clinical trial to prove that the drug actually benefited patients. And under that original agreement that they reached with the FDA back in 2016, they did agree to a clinical trial that was supposed to be completed in 2020, and a final report was going to be submitted to the FDA in 2021. Now, that study has still not uh, started. And under a new plan that Sarepta put in place this summer, the study is going to start by the end of the year, but they don't think that it will finish until 2024. So, you know, the company is running three to four years behind schedule. So how did Sarepta explain why it's so far behind? So I talked to Sarepta about this, and they basically said that when the drug was approved back in 2016, the company was very busy trying to, you know, get the drug on the market and deal with insurance companies. And there was a lot of things that were going on internally. And when it came to the confirmatory study, there was a lot of uncertainty about how exactly to design the confirmatory study, what dose to use, and and other details that they had to work out with the FDA. So they regret that it's taken this long, but they tell me that they were you know, always fully committed to meeting their requirements and, and doing it. Now, I've also talked to caregivers and I talked to families, and one parent of a DMD child actually did tell me that they felt like that, you know, Sarepta was kind of dragging its feet here and that, you know, they were generating a lot of money from this drug and that they sort of maybe did not exactly want to know whether the drug worked or not. Now, you know, to be fair, this parent believes that Exonus 51 does work and it benefited their child, but they still kind of criticize Sarepta for taking as long as they've taken. So, Adam, can the FDA penalize Sarepta for failing to meet its commitments? So I asked the FDA that question, Rebecca, and I got an interesting response back. I mean, what the FDA told me was that they can't go after a company for failing to meet its commitments until that commitment is officially past due. So in this case, under the original agreement, they're supposed to have the confirmatory study done by 2020, 2021. So it won't be until then where the FDA can kind of go to the company and say, look, you're, you're missing the deadlines. But at the same time, the FDA told me how critically important it is to have this confirmatory study. I mean, the FDA is sort of in a bind. I mean, they can kind of admonish a company, um, but there's nothing like from a regulatory standpoint that they can really do. I mean, they're certainly not going to pull the drug off the market until those results are known. But, you know, again, this just sort of points up the sort of loophole that companies can use to have a drug on the market, generate sales, but, you know, not have a confirmatory study underway. And while we don't have the data from that confirmatory trial, Exondus 51 has been on the market for about three years, so presumably there'd be some anecdotes out there. In your reporting, did you talk to parents and, and doctors about whether they think the drug is working? You know, I did. I talked to a lot of doctors and I talked to a lot of families uh, with children who have Duchenne. And, you know, not all of them made into the story that was published. But what's interesting is, is that generally most people do feel like, you know, the drug is doing something, but it's very difficult to quantify. I spoke to a doctor who treats Duchenne patients, and what she told me was that, you know, some patients benefit, some patients are not benefiting. You know, families go on the drug, they go off the drug. But to her, she really couldn't tell whether or not 
Exonus 51 was slowing the progression of Duchenne until there's a clinical trial, that she really wanted to see a confirmatory clinical trial done so that would give them a definitive answer. And I think, again, that's kind of underscores the story, that right now what we have are anecdotal evidence. We have stories of families. You can see videos that are posted online of children with Duchenne who are taking Exonus 51, and they seem to be walking. They seem to be functioning better than they would if they weren't on the drug. But that's anecdotal. We don't have actual data from a clinical trial. And that's why it's so important that Sarepta run that clinical trial. So Adam, you're not shy about your opinion. And that reminds me that you supported the FDA's decision to grant accelerated approval to Exondus back in 2016. Do you still think that was the right decision? You know, I do, Rebecca. You know, I didn't write the story to relitigate the decision back in 2016 to grant accelerated approval to Exondus. I think that's done. And I agree with that decision. I think that the FDA made the right call. You know, when you look back, it's good that the drug is on the market for these kids who need it. But at the same time, there is a big responsibility to get that confirmatory study done, as I mentioned. And it's been three years since the drug was on the market. And that's why I started looking back to see, you know, what steps the company was taking. And I think, you know, it's a little disappointing that the company is taking as long as it is to do that confirmatory study that so that we finally have an answer about whether this drug works or not. So next up, we're bringing back the lightning round. Greg Freiberg is going to join us again for this segment. Greg, thanks for humoring us with this. Fantastic. So here's how it's going to work. We will ask Greg a question in which he must pick between one of two binary options. There will be no hedging or dodging of the question, and we will let him explain his reasoning. Greg, are you ready to get started? I'm ready to try. All right, Greg, first question, and this is about geography. You went to medical school just outside of New York City, and you did your fellowship training at the University of Chicago. So we have to know which city has the better pizza, New York or Chicago? (laughs) New York has my heart, and uh, there's nothing better than the thin pizza folded over, a slice on the street, and you can't beat the price. So you've been living in the Los Angeles area for the past 13 years working for Amgen, One thing that generates a lot of outrage among Los Angelinos is the way that L.A. is depicted by non-L.A. media, particularly The New York Times. Do you agree that The New York Times and others get L.A. wrong? I believe L.A. is misunderstood. It's really a city of immigrants in many ways, uh, whether they're from you know, other parts of the country. You know, the city's not that old compared to the East Coast. And from that standpoint, uh, trying to pigeonhole it into one category, I think, is a mistake. So, Greg, as a podcast listener, you may recall the episode in which we interviewed Josiah Zayner, the biohacker who famously crispered himself on stage. So you're a scientist. Would you ever, under any circumstances, take a homegrown medicine, yes or no? Never. (laughs) Fair. I think my thought is that, you know, again, I'm someone who's been raised to pray at the altar of evidence-based medicine. And from that standpoint, it's very difficult for me to embrace an opportunity to, you know, take advantage of anecdotal medicine. And from that standpoint, you know, I think safety really does need to come first. So, Greg, we've talked a number of times on this podcast about the traditional four horsemen of biotech. That's Biogen, Celgene, Gilead, and, of course, your employer, Amgen. Now, increasingly, there's a sense in light of things like the Celgene, Bristol-Myers Squibb deal, and other shifts in the industry that this categorization of biotech's four standard bearers may no longer be all that meaningful. So what do you think? The four horsemen of biotech, is that a concept outdated or still useful? 
I think it's outdated. The reality is Amgen's coming up on its 40th anniversary, uh, which is quite exciting, but it's a long run. And it's fantastic that it's an organization that has maintained its independence. But the reality is the four horsemen, as you call them, they're not the, you know, the single harbors of good ideas. There's just so much good work. And the spirit of biotech is really out there with some of these startups. They're trying new things. They're taking risks that larger organizations can't. The ecosystem has evolved. And, and while I think the, the construct at its place uh, in the past. It's, we've moved beyond that, and the, the lines are really blurred. Okay, next question. Let's talk about a debate in the oncology community around the blockbuster cancer immunotherapies on the market. Do you think Keytruda and Optivo are actually different, or is it just trial design? Uh, if you forced me to say one, I would say trial design. I think there are going, with monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, blocking antibodies, there are going to be subtle differences. And usually the PK profiles and antigen binding domains, we can see those. My opinion has been not only for uh, the PD-1 space, but for other antibodies in the oncology space as well, that they're much more alike than they are different. Uh, and, and it goes to show you how important a job is of developing these drugs, picking the right populations, deploying them into the right space, and then proving to the world that, again, the effect size in that population is something that's meaningful. So, Greg, you'll be receiving a thank you note from Bristol Myers Squibb. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, so last question. We noticed, at least as far as we could tell, that you don't have an official Twitter account. But do you have a burner Twitter account? <laughs> I do. I have a, well, it's not a burner, but I have a private Twitter account. And uh, maybe after this, I'll have to befriend you all so you can see that, <laughs> that I do occasionally put up what I think are some, some exciting pieces of data that come out. Well, we might even retweet you. Uh, that was fun. Greg, thanks for sticking around for the lightning round. Thanks for letting me have that opportunity. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode or how you feel about DNA spit tests. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. And if you like what we do, tell a friend or perhaps leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.